we began this sermon series, the book of Acts, back in March of 2021. I wonder uh, what your hopes were for this series and your own personal study of the book of Acts, Sunday in and Sunday out, as we began that series. Uh, One of my hopes for uh, the series was for us to grow in our boldness in proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Time and time again, we have seen in the book of Acts, uh, the disciples of Jesus, apostles, uh, deacons, faithfully and boldly and joyfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray that even as we conclude this series, uh, we would still desire in our hearts to grow in precisely that way. We're looking at the last chapter together this morning. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 31, all of the verses uh, in the chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 937. Uh, While you're turning there, let me tell you what I've told you nearly every sermon in this series so far. What's the goal or the aim of the book of Acts? It's kind of right there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The book of Acts, it, it chronicles really the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through his disciples by the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples right there in the very beginning that his purpose was for them to take the good news of his resurrection, his kingship, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to take it, beginning there in Jerusalem and moving out to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. That's the program that the book of Acts follows. And we are kind of in that fourth phase of the program. If you kind of look at the development of the book of Acts, we're in that last one, where the gospel's going to the ends of the earth. Uh, It's particularly Luke narrates that advance in that last and fourth and final program, really through the lens of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul begins to to make his way uh, to Rome. In fact, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus told Paul that he must not only testify to him, to his messianic rule, in Jerusalem, but also in Rome. And so from that point forward, everything is geared toward going to Rome. And from a Jerusalem perspective, which is kind of the perspective of which uh, Luke is writing, in which Jews read uh, these passages, from a Jerusalem perspective, Rome is at the ends of the earth. So as we, we come to Acts chapter 28, and as Paul walks into Rome, the goal of Acts has been reached and fulfilled. The, the very trajectory that it's been on the whole time uh, reaches its culmination and goal with Paul walking in and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, as you know, through the course of our study, he's not had an easy uh, trip so far to Rome. Right? He was attacked in Jerusalem. Uh, he was set upon by, by mobs. He faced some corrupt judges. He was almost beaten by a Roman centurion. There were a couple of plots made on his life. And then, of course, in our last study in the book of Acts, we saw that he endured a shipwreck. And our passage picks up right there. Uh, After everyone's brought safely to shore, that's where Luke uh, begins Acts chapter 28. And so uh, what is the the, the main idea that Luke is going to try and express uh, in this final chapter? What would it be that Luke wants to encourage us to to think about and to really take upon for our our own hearts and lives as we, we look at this chapter? I think it's simply this, that we receive the king warmly and we proclaim him boldly. Uh, We're going to see Paul, as an ambassador for Christ, received warmly. So he's standing there as a representative of Jesus, and he's received warmly by barbarians and believers. But not only that, he proclaims Christ boldly there in Rome. And I think that this simply teaches us how we ought to respond to Acts chapter 28 as well. We're going to unpack this idea that we're to receive the king warmly and to proclaim him boldly. 
in three sections under three headings. In verses 1 to 16, we'll see Paul Paul receive hospitality from barbarians and believers. And then in the next set of verses, verses 17 to 29, we'll see hostility from the Jews there in Rome to Paul and his message. And third and finally, we'll look at the last couple of verses of the book where we see Paul heralding the good news of Jesus from home without hindrance. So let's begin with our first point. Hospitality from barbarians and believers. And as we do, let's read just the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 28. And notice how if you look at the last few words of of chapter 27, all were brought safely to land. Let's begin reading and notice how Luke echoes that there in verse 1. Here we go, Acts 28 verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place, were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Well, as I pointed out there, the opening words of Luke, uh, sorry, of Acts chapter 28, written by Luke, Acts chapter 28, they echo the words of the previous chapter, and Luke's reminding us that everyone's safe, all 276 persons. He's, He's reminding us of God's act in preserving and protecting Paul through that storm. It reminds us of God's sovereign and saving power. But another surprise awaited those from the ship as they landed on shore. They were greeted by hospitable barbarians. There's probably a a note there in your your translation somewhere, at least in the ESV. The ESV translates that word native peoples. Uh, While native peoples is a faithful translation, it kind of mutes Luke's surprise and doesn't help us sense the surprise quite as much. You see how how Luke expresses his surprise there in verse 2. The native peoples showed us, or people showed us, unusual kindness. So Luke and and Paul and all who were on board that ship and landed on shore weren't exactly expecting this from the island peoples. While on the one hand, barbarians were simply those who didn't speak Greek, weren't familiar with Roman customs. Um, On the other hand, there's evidence in ancient literature that barbarians are, shall we say, a little less refined uh, than those in that Roman world and culture. Well, whatever the case may be, These barbarians surprised Luke and Paul and all who were there, who survived that shipwreck, with warm hospitality on the island. And here we learn no small lesson too. As we are able, 
uh, we should be ready, eager, and willing to help those in need. Uh, who knows, maybe uh, doing so, you, you'd be helping a, mission, uh, a missionary, a messenger of the gospel, like these barbarians were actually helping Paul. And as much as Paul was helped, he actually gave himself to helping, didn't he? The fire was started by the barbarians, but Paul took the initiative to keep it going, didn't he? The mighty apostle was not afraid to do manual and menial labor to serve his neighbor. He was a man of the word as well as a man of work, what all men should be. He gathered a bundle of sticks and sought to keep the fire going. And as we see there in verses 3 to 6, there was a slithering snake stashed in the sticks. It latched onto his hand and the islanders, they jumped to a conclusion, don't they? Paul must be guilty of murder or guilty of some vicious crime. He may have escaped the goddess Justice. That's why there, there's a capital J there, probably in your translation. Uh, that Justice governed the seas, so to speak. But she wasn't about to let him get away on shore. That's what the barbarians were thinking. But you almost wonder what Paul is thinking when he's bitten by this venomous viper. He seems to just coolly shake it off, doesn't he? It's a, it's a strange turn of phrase. He, he must have been trusting in God's promises of power in that very moment. Remember, God had promised Paul that he would testify for him in Rome. And so as he kind of was bitten by that venomous snake, he must, Paul must think, how am I going to survive this? I, I don't know, but I've, I've got to keep going and trust the Lord. Uh, the, the islanders are more than a little fickle, right? As time develops and they see nothing happens to Paul, their view swings from a murderer to almost messianic. He's some form of a, a god. But what should we think of this? How should we think of this from a Christian perspective in the light of, of the scriptures and what they teach us? Well, the hospitality of the barbarians and the venom of the viper, I don't think are insignificant events. Um, we should think, I think, about what Jesus said to the 72 in Luke's gospel. Remember Luke, he's the author not only of Acts, but also of Luke's gospel. And there are a lot of parallels between the two volumes. One of them is what happens in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus commissions these 72 to go out uh, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It sheds light on what we're reading here. So when Jesus was sending out the 72 in Luke chapter 10 to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come near, in particular in Luke chapter 10 verse 16, Jesus told them that those who hear and receive them as his messengers are hearing and receiving him. In Jesus' mind, there's actually a direct relationship between receiving the messengers of the Messiah and receiving the Messiah himself. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus also told the 72 that he would give them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and to exercise authority over all the power of the enemy and that nothing should hurt them. And what we're seeing here then is that Paul, like those 72 were divinely authorized ambassadors of Jesus to go and proclaim the kingdom, so is Paul. He's a divinely authorized ambassador. And the barbarians are receiving him. And it makes us hopeful that they would receive Jesus. You know, another thing that Jesus promised the 72 in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, was that they would have power to heal the sick. So you see Paul here, in verses 7 and 9, he heals the sick. He has power, and he actually mimics the power of the Savior, the Lord Jesus, there in Publius' house. Paul is hospitably welcomed, and it's, it's funny that the language, it just happened, like it just so happened uh, that Publius' father lay sick there with fever and dysentery. And it just so happened that Paul healed him. N none of this is just so happening. All this is happening by the divine design of God. And with all the people coming to Paul, 
we should remember that this is very similar to what happened with Jesus. You probably remember in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And after that, the whole city gathers there at the door to be healed by Jesus. And so what, what does Paul do? He heals Publius, his father-in-law, sorry, his father, um, father of Publius. And then uh, everybody gathers there to be healed by Paul. It's a replay of what was happening in Jesus' ministry. So while Paul is not an angel, the scene does border on fulfillment, right, of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Paul is, in a certain sense, manifesting the presence of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Luke is trying to communicate that the king's authority to perform signs and wonders through his authorized ambassadors is reaching the nations. Right? The, the praise of Jesus is reaching the nations, the coastlands and the islands, as the Psalms would say. Jesus is blessing the nations on high through his servant Paul. And they are blessing his servant in return. We see that as they fully supply the ship there in verse 10. And all of, us, all of this gives us hope that since they've received the Messiah's messenger, that maybe, just maybe, they've received the message of the Messiah as well. Whatever the case may be, Paul continues on his journey. Follow along. Pick up their reading in verse 11. We'll read verse 16. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. A ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after uh, one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Well, here in verses 11 to 13, we have Luke returning back to his travelogues. He's very precise in how he records Paul's travels. He carefully recounts the places and companions that Paul met and stopped with along the way. And it's interesting that, that Paul is on this ship with twin gods, probably Castor and Pollux, as the figurehead. Still, from the previous scenes, and especially from Acts chapter 28, we know who really controls the winds and the waves. These twin head, kind of figurehead gods would be placed on a ship, hoping that they would have peaceful sailing. But we know that it's not those gods or those figureheads who control the winds and the waves. It's the Lord Jesus who said, peace be still. He's the one who controls the winds and the waves. He's the master of the sea. And he's in charge of Paul's destination. Notice there that when Paul and, and others on the ship arrive at Puteoli, it becomes clear that they, they find fellow believers in the area. And just as Paul and others were received warmly on the island, here they're being received warmly there. They're invited to say seven days, which if you've had company in your home for seven days, you know that's no little amount of time. Uh, so they, they must have loved Paul richly and deeply. Uh, some, though, you notice, uh, they, they, some, uh, maybe, maybe this happened for you as you're reading the, the text, some have stumbled over that phrase there, and so we came to Rome, um, and we came to Rome at the end of verse 14, and the declaration there, and when we came into Rome there in verse 16. I would encourage you, don't allow that to, to kind of trip you up. Okay, what, are we at Rome yet or not, Paul, uh, Luke? What's, what's going on here? 
uh, here's what's happening. So, so after Puteoli, Paul and the others are making their way by foot into Rome. So that's their kind of stopping point. They, they walk in there. They're getting closer and closer. Uh, and as they do, they're kind of entering in the outer precincts of Rome. And eventually they come into Rome proper. Think of it like landing at Dulles Airport. Strangely, they tell you, welcome to Washington, D.C. But you're not in Washington, D.C. You've got some time to go before you actually get into the city proper. I think that kind of thing is happening where you're in the outer kind of larger precincts. And that's what's happening here as Luke is narrating these events. Paul and his companions, they were not only received by the believers in Puteoli, but they were also received by the believers in Rome. Verse 15 describes these believers from Rome traveling at least 30 miles to greet Paul and to journey with him into the heart of the city. Now, now think of what's maybe going through Paul's mind. Here he is, he's being marched into Rome. He, he's coming to his final trial. Uh, there could be a lot of anxieties welling up into Paul's heart. But we see here, Paul is encouraged by this. These fellow believers coming alongside him and walking with him into Rome, coming there. In all of this, Luke, I think, is continuing to set up the contrast between how Paul is received by the Gentiles on the islands, how he's loved by fellow believers in Jesus there in Rome, uh, sorry, in Rome and how he'll actually be, the contrast will be how he's received by the Jews there in Rome. The goal of the whole chapter is to, to show how the message of the Messiah and how his messengers ought to be warmly welcomed and received. But before we move on um, and consider the hostility that we're going to see from the Jews there in Rome, let, let's think about how we can apply the hospitality that we see in these verses of our own lives. Three, idea, three ideas kind of jump into my mind. We can be hospitable, we can be helpful, and we can give heartfelt thanks. Uh, first of all, we can be hospitable. Let's be hospitable. So many of you do this already. But let me exhort all of us to continue to make hospitality a priority in our, in our daily lives, in the life of our family, and in the life of our church. So one practical way would be, right, when, when missionaries come to town, we can be willing to host them in our homes. So if you're, if you're willing to do this, uh, reach out to me. Let me know. From time to time, I have missionaries reach out. Maybe one's calling now. And they want to ask me, uh, hey, do you have a place to stay uh, there in your congregation? Can somebody house us? Uh, and it would be great for me to have a list of you know, people in our congregation who be willing to host a missionary and welcome them uh, here in our church family. It would be great to provide them a room, warm fellowship, and, and food. Uh, so let's provide them with that. We, we see this kind of hospitality not only in the barbarians, but also there in the believers as well. And, and let's not be afraid to identify with those who are suffering for Christ, right? That's what Paul has endured. And he's probably bedraggled and beaten down a, a good bit, kind of emotionally, certainly physically. He's suffered a lot in that shipwreck alone. Uh, it, it's, it's encouraging when believers come alongside and warmly welcome others. This heartened Paul, gave him courage as he thought about standing before Caesar. Second application from this idea of this, this point. Let's also be helpful. Right? Paul, he collected a bundle of sticks to help fuel the fire. That was practical. He saw a need uh, and he, he attempted to do something about it. So let's be looking for ways that we can be helpful. Uh, you don't need anyone's permission to serve others. Just get busy serving. Look around with eyes open for service, 
find ways to be helpful. So, so ask Curtis if he needs help in facilitating the services here, handing out bulletins, serving communion, helping prepare communion, preparing for baptism, things like that. Ask Curtis if there are ways that you can be helpful. Ask Johanna about child care workers and whether or not she needs more workers to, to help serve and care for the kids of our church family. Ask Dennis if there are any Sunday school teachers needed for the summer. Uh, ask Selip if she needs help cleaning up after church. Look around for needs, and if you can do something, then you need to do it. Be helpful. Serve. And let me just kind of commend uh, the youth and the children of our congregation for a minute for being helpful. Um, thank you for taking out the trash on Wednesday nights, week after week after week. Uh, thank you for serving food during our members' meetings. Thank you for setting up tables and chairs and putting them away when it's all over. So thank you for being helpful. You richly bless our church family, and we are grateful to God for you. Third application, third point. Let's give heartfelt thanks. Do you see what verse 15 says? It says, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Right When fellow believers, when fellow believers bless you and strengthen your hand in the Lord... Give thanks to the Lord for them. Fellow believers are a grace gift to you. And you shouldn't let God go unthanked for them. So pray for them and thank God for them. Well, having considered the hospitality that Paul receives from the barbarians and the believers, let's turn now and consider the hostility that Paul faced from the Jews there in Rome. This is our second point. Let's begin by reading verses 17 to 22. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect... We know that everywhere it is spoken against. Well, in verses 17 to 22, Paul does what he always does whenever he comes to town. He meets with local Jews to explain the hope of Israel. His hope that the Messiah has come and arrived and that that is Jesus Christ. We see here that Paul, he, he recaps really kind of what brought him to Rome. And in doing so, he declares his innocence, right? He's, I'm not guilty of all of those charges they levied against me. I'm not a defiler of the temple. I'm not a deceitful teacher. I didn't stir up trouble. I'm not guilty of, of any of those things. He honestly shares how the Roman rulers actually wish to set him free. A strong declaration or in, indication of his innocence. But what has kept him bound and in chains was that the Jews back in Judea uh, they, they wanted, they objected to his being released. Uh, they wanted him really actually to be put to death. Their hostility against Paul was so fierce that his only recourse was to appeal to Caesar, seek protection under Caesar. And notice what Paul says there at the end of verse 19. 
he actually has no charges to bring against his nation. Though his nation brought charges against him, uh, though they kind of made sure he remained in chains, Paul has no charges against his nation. They have hounded him all the way to Rome. But Paul is not ready to counter suit. What a remarkable and gracious spirit Paul has here. I tend to think that the natural human reaction would be to kind of retaliate against those who haunt you with false charges. But Paul, he does not. He's gracious uh, toward his fellow Jews. He, he loves the people of God. And he wants to see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. More important than Paul's innocence and his lack of holding grudge is the reason for Paul's being in chains. Right? He says there very clearly in verse 20 that the reason he's in chains is because of the hope of Israel. And when Paul uttered those words, his, his Jewish hearers would have known exactly what he meant. They would have knew that he was saying that he was in chains because he believes the Messiah has come. The Messiah is the, the promised king of Israel, the one whom the Old Testament promised would come and set God's people free. Every faithful Jew was anxiously awaiting and anticipating the arrival of God's Messiah. So this would have been a staggering claim to those Jews who were there in Rome, the very seat and center of power in the known world at the time. Paul, he faced hostility from the Jews in Jerusalem for his belief in the Messiah. But even the Jews in Rome know that there's kind of this ongoing hostility toward those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. While they don't know anything about the hostility towards Paul, or so they say, uh, they do know that those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah faced hostility everywhere. That's really the thrust of the second half of verse 22. With regards to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Christians were facing hostility everywhere in the known world. Even though there's hostility toward those who herald the message, what's interesting is they still want to hear it from Paul, don't they? That's what we find there in verse 23. Let's read verse 23 now. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Look at what God has done. He promised Paul that he would testify to Jesus in Rome, all the way back in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And here God's promise to Paul is coming true. He's testifying to Jesus right there in Rome. And through Paul's testimony, he is demonstrating and declaring the arrival of the king and the commencement of his kingdom. Paul does this, you see there, from morning till evening. I promise not to keep you that long. Uh, but perhaps that ought to encourage you to come back for the evening service uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, but note carefully what Paul is doing from morning till evening. He's expounding. That's actually what we seek to do here in, in the sermons at ABC. Expound the scriptures. That simply means opening them up, reading them, explaining them, and applying them. In doing that, our goal in that kind of preaching is to allow the scriptures to set the agenda for the sermon. And for what we need to hear as the people of God. Rather than Mike's great bright ideas of throwing them out and maybe grabbing some scripture to attach them to encourage you to adopt. Rather, we let God give us his good ideas and we follow what he says. So, that, so that's what Paul is doing. He's opening the scriptures. He's explaining them and explaining especially how they point to Jesus Christ. We want to hear from God. We want to hear what God has to say. And if God is speaking, 
then we should be listening. And parents, this is an important lesson I think that you can reinforce at home in your own time uh, with your children around God's Word. And I trust that you do this. So when you sit around the dinner table or, or at the edge of your kid's bed and read the Scriptures to them at night, one of the things that you could say to your kids is that the Bible is the Word of God. It's God-breathed, as Paul tells us in Timothy. When we read it, we hear God speaking. So, so let's listen carefully and closely. Through Paul's exposition, his expounding the Scriptures, he's testifying to the Kingdom of God. And the Kingdom of God, according to the Scriptures has more to do with the king's rule than it has to do with the king's realm. It's true that Jesus has a realm. His realm is nothing less than the entire cosmos, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, as he says in Matthew chapter 28. But the kingdom of God expresses itself where Jesus is recognized as the rightful ruler over all. I appreciate the way uh, Gerhardus Voss describes the kingdom of God when he writes, the kingdom exists where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers and brings man to the willing recognition of the same. So we come into the kingdom as we come under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens in the kingdom as we follow and subject ourselves and submit ourselves to the king. And so as Paul was explaining to these men the kingdom of God, which they would have had expectations for, right? David's son would rule. So they had expectations of a king and a kingdom. What he's saying is Jesus is that kingdom. And in fact, Jesus is establishing his kingdom as women and men submit to Jesus in repentance and faith. This sect that's being spoken against everywhere in the world is actually the expression of the kingdom that they've been hoping for and waiting for. And longing for. And that's why we see that Paul here is trying to convince them about Jesus. After all, if there is a kingdom, then there is most certainly a king. Jesus is that promised king that the law of Moses and the prophets spoke about. As Paul has done before in the book of Acts, so he does again. He embraces his Jewish heritage and claims that the whole Old Testament spoke of Jesus. You know, that, that designation, the law of Moses and the prophets, is simply a way of summarizing, really, the whole Old Testament. So Paul is saying the whole Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. And Paul, in saying that, is really only following Jesus' lead. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. As we thought about before and as we think about again now, uh, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God had planted, as it were, seeds of promise. And in Jesus Christ, those seeds have blossomed. The promises have been fulfilled. So think about the seed planted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the law of Moses, right? God promised that he would send a son who would crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and death. And in his resurrection from the dead, the writer of Hebrews that this is just what Jesus says, that this is just what Jesus has done. Another example, in Genesis chapter 49, again, the law of Moses, Genesis 49, verse 10, we're told that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, that's a king's instrument, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, God's promised king would rule the nations. And that's what's happening in Jesus Christ. As he ascended to heaven to rule. And as people from every tongue and tribe and nation have come to love and serve and obey him. In 2 Samuel 
Chapter 7, verse 16, one of the prophets. God promised David that a son from his lineage would sit on his throne and reign as king over God's people for all eternity. That's what Jesus is doing even now. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 12, one of the prophets. God promised that he would send a servant to suffer for the sins of his people. That's just what Jesus did on the cross. From texts like these, and probably dozens of others, Paul was pleading with his Jewish brethren. He was trying to convince them, persuading, presenting arguments that the king and his kingdom have come. And what was their response? Did they warmly receive Jesus like those Gentiles did on that island, as the coastlands did, maybe? Did they give Jesus hospitality in their hearts? Did they listen and believe? Well, let's find out. Read verses 24 to 28. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Luke's retelling of the outcome of Paul's all-day teaching and preaching is mixed, isn't it? It's also sad. In verse 24, we're told that some were convinced, and yet in that same verse we're told that others disbelieved. Responses to the good news of Jesus are often mixed, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. It seems to me that while some have been convinced, I think we're left to wonder if any were converted. We're not told anywhere in the narrative that some believed. You can be intellectually convinced of something, but not be converted to it. You can understand, but you cannot submit your life to it as well. There's a danger in that. In fact, what we're told is that Paul, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. The perception of the prophet is that many in Israel would refuse to hear and heed the proclamation of God's grace. Well, they would hear, but not really hear with a heart of faith. This quote from Isaiah 6, the passage we had earlier in the service, it's part of Isaiah's commission, where the Lord tells Isaiah to go and preach to a people who would not listen. It was essentially a commission of judgment to go and preach to the people of Israel. Uh, hear, but don't understand what God is saying. Hear, but, but don't understand. See, but don't perceive the truth his prophet is proclaiming. The problem with the people of Israel was not with comprehending God's word. No, the problem with the people of Israel is that they have willfully rejected their God. They had a pre-existing condition of unbelief. That's what we read about. Actually, if you were to read Isaiah just a little bit earlier in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the prophet says this, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master 
its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. See, the people of Israel, they had this pre-existing condition, even before Isaiah's preaching. And it was a hardness of hearts toward God. And the same was happening with Paul. The hardness of Israel's heart has not changed since the time of Isaiah, Paul seems to be saying. What we're seeing here is analogous to what parents experience sometimes with, or, or teachers experience sometimes with children or students. A teacher is speaking and standing and they are listening, right? They're listening, but they're not really listening. Uh, you probably know that because you've done it to your boss in a meeting, maybe, uh, when he's going on and on and you kind of just tune him out. Uh, maybe you've done it to your spouse while you're looking at your cell phone. I'm not confessing anything at the moment, though perhaps I'm guilty of that from time to time. I'm just suggesting that that's a possibility for those who are married to listen, but not really listen. Maybe you've even done it to a preacher. Uh, you listen, but you don't really listen. Sometimes the reason for that can be because our heart is captured by other things. Right? So such an attitude toward the Word of God stems from a, a heart which is already dull to the things of God. Ears that are already heavy to the things of this world. And eyes that are already blind to spiritual reality. They're not listening. And Luke tells us that they leave when Paul quotes Isaiah and gives that kind of declaration at the end. He promised to take the message to the Gentiles who will listen. What a promise. The Gentiles will listen. This is actually the third time in the book of Acts that Paul has said something like this. That you're not listening and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And every time he says this, the Jews are kind of divided and angry. Uh, he announced this proclamation back in Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47, and in Acts chapter 18, verses 6. And what's interesting is you look at the book of Acts unfold, the Gentiles actually have listened. They have listened. They listened and believed upon Jesus, not only in the book of Acts itself, but most believers here this morning are actually Gentiles. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have actually listened to the message about Him. The Gentiles, Paul says... Uh, will not be hostile to the message about Christ. Rather, they will warmly welcome the message of the Messiah and receive Him into their hearts. And again, they have. And God's been gracious to us, hasn't He? Gentiles all over the world, including even some here this morning, have received Christ as their King. As we think about these verses, and what they mean for us as we seek to apply them to our lives, we need to ask ourselves whether or not we are hostile to Jesus or if we're hearing and receiving the message about Him. Are you using your ears? I say this particularly to maybe some of the children who have been coming here for years and years and years, and you've been hearing this message about Jesus. Are you hearing and hearing with a heart of faith? Are you stuffing your ears or covering them over in unbelief? Maybe you're not just a child, but maybe you've been going to church for years, or you've gone to church over the years. Are you hearing with a heart of faith, eager and ready to do what the Savior says. Friend, I, I urge you, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to hear the good news, to hear and believe. Friend, Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. We have been hostile toward God. We've all been hostile toward God. We've all sinned against God. We've all refused to listen to God. We've all rebelled against God. And we've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. Because of our sin and rebellion, we deserve to face God's judgment and wrath. But the amazing and glorious and good news of the Bible is this, that God sent His one and only Son into the world to live and to die 
and to be raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus Christ, God beckons us to lay down our arms, to set aside our hostility, to submit our lives to His rule, to come under His kingship and to come into His kingdom. We do this by confessing that we've sinned against God, that we're actually worthy of facing His eternal and just punishment for our sins. We do this by believing that Jesus came into the world as our substitute, living the life of perfect righteousness for us, and dying on the cross, bearing the punishment that is due to our sins. We do this by believing that God raised Him from the grave on the third day. We do this by turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus for salvation. We do this by submitting ourselves to His Word. What He says, we do. Where He sends, we go. Friend, use your ears this morning and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. Hear Him. Hear His offer of salvation and warmly receive Him into your heart. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive this King, then come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. We'd love to talk with you about this good news. These verses, they teach us that we should use our ears, but they also teach us that we should use the Scriptures. Did you notice that about Paul? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that the Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when you are evangelizing your friends and family, use the Bible. Even the Old Testament, that's what Paul was using. That's what he was using when he was evangelizing and sharing about Jesus. The scriptures were what Paul went to in order to prove that Jesus was the promised king. The Old Testament scriptures. So let's use God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible words to make Jesus known. So just a way to help you in that, right? When you're reading the Bible personally or privately, when you're reading it with your community group or your small group, uh, when you're reading it with another Christian one-on-one, ask yourself this question. How would I get to Jesus from this text? How can I share Jesus Christ from this passage? What about God do I need to make known? What about sin do I need to make known? And how is Jesus the answer to God's holiness and my sin in light of His holiness? Try to think through each passage of Scripture about how you can share Christ from that passage. And that that will help you prepare for proclamation. So let's use the Scriptures as we share God's Word and share the truth about Jesus. Beloved, these verses also teach us that we should use appeals and arguments. We should seek to convince. Paul wasn't about mere information transfer. He was about sinners being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He went for the heart through the head, but he went for the heart. He appealed to his hearers. He tried to convince them. As I said, he tried to use arguments. He tried to woo their affections. Appeal and plead to your neighbors and your friends and your family and co-workers to come to Jesus. Seek to convince them to enter Christ's kingdom through repentance and faith, just like Paul did. Well, finally, let's conclude our study of Acts with the final verses of the book. Here we see Paul heralding the gospel from his home without hindrance. Follow along as I read verses 30 and 31 of Acts 28. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is a remarkable way, remarkable way for the book of Acts to end, isn't it? Uh, though Paul is still in chains, he's still communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He's free to share Jesus Christ. We can say he's bound to share Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that Luke doesn't tell us when, where, or how Paul reached his final trial. And that's because the book of Acts is not about Paul. It's a message about Jesus reaching the ends of the earth. And it has. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 has been fulfilled. It reached the island nations and coastlands. They are a Malta. It reached Rome, the ends of the earth. And the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it actually further underscores his lordship. That Jesus can promise, you will take my gospel to the ends of the earth and then personally and powerfully see it through right to the end. It proves that Jesus is Lord. Friend, you should bow your knee to this Lord. Jesus is able to bring his promises to pass. Paul, Paul, he is welcoming all who walk in. While Gentiles are undoubtedly hearing the good news of Jesus Christ there in Rome, we should also hope that some of the Jews in Rome are coming back to Paul and hearing about Jesus. And Paul's message we see here, it hasn't changed, has it? Just as he proclaimed the good news of the king and the kingdom to the Jews, so he proclaimed it to all. See that there? Verse 31, this teaches us that our message remains the same. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, as Paul himself says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Notice the, the last few phrases of the book. Paul is proclaiming Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Reminds me of what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. From the beginning to the end of this book, nothing has stopped the progress of the gospel. Nothing has stopped the progress of this message about Jesus. Disciple after disciple has shared the message of Jesus boldly. Apostles and disciples and deacons have faced harassment, beatings, imprisonments, stonings, trials, shipwrecks, and house arrests, but nothing has stopped the message about Jesus. And nothing ever will. Until Jesus returns, the world will keep spinning and disciples will keep speaking. Beloved, as I conclude this sermon, as we conclude our study of this book, I want to press home a few applications. First, share Christ with all. I take that from these words, welcomed all who came to him. Paul did not turn away any who wanted to hear the good news about Jesus, and neither should we. So as a, as a church family, we want to keep our doors open to all who want to come in. We want to welcome them and share Christ with them. You know, in the, the church growth world, church growth strategists, there's this encouragement to have a target demographic. So people you're aiming your ministry at, uh, you want to get them to come to your church. So you, you aim for them. Uh, church growth strategists and consultants will tell you to aim your ministry at kind of the, the same kinds of people with the same kinds of interests and the same kinds of backgrounds. Beloved, do you know who we're aiming to share Christ with? You know what our target demographic is? Sinners. We're aiming at them. We want to get those who are in Adam, which is everyone, we want to get them out of Adam and into Christ. We welcome all and share Christ with all because all are sinners and in need of the Savior. Second, like Paul, 
We want to stick to the same message. The message that we've heard over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And I'm taking this point. We want to stick to the same message from those words. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very same thing that Paul was speaking about to the Jews in verse 23. And everywhere else he spoke in the book of Acts. Like Paul, we want to proclaim the king and his kingdom. The message of Christ is the message that saves sinners. And here's the thing, it's harder to do than you think. Our world constantly tempts us to be distracted with current events, which call for systemic solutions. But there is only one Savior. He is the only one who can change hearts and lives. He is creating a new people with new loves and new lives. We need changing from the inside out. And only Jesus can do that. Keep me faithful to proclaiming Christ. And I pray that you keep faithfully proclaiming, proclaiming Christ. We stick to the same message. Third, finally, shamelessly share Christ. And I take that from those words in verse 31, with all boldness and without hindrance. So with, by, by shamelessly share Christ, I mean be bold like Paul. When you tell someone that they are a sinner and that Christ is the Savior, that's bold. And you are not uttering anything you need to be ashamed of when you say that. You are uttering the truth. Stand by the truth. God's truth, no matter the cost. It's not shameful to be on God's side of truth. It's shameful to be opposed to God's truth. The world may tempt us. It may tempt you and tell you that you're being unkind or unloving by saying that we are all sinners and that Jesus is the only Savior. But that's untrue. It's neither unkind nor unloving. In fact, it is kind and is loving. Some will call the message of sin and salvation in Jesus Christ offensive. But the only thing that is being assaulted in the message of Jesus is unbelief and the one who rules the underworld and tries to keep sinners slaves to sin. Beloved, we need more boldness. And Acts 28 teaches us that the message of Jesus has reached the ends of the earth but that doesn't mean that the proclamation of the message has to come to an end. We have received the king warmly and we are to proclaim him boldly. Jesus' disciples were to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and spreading from Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Wherever we make our home, let us like Paul herald Christ without hindrance. Let's pray that God will graciously strengthen us to share Christ more and more until he comes again. Let's offer that prayer to God now together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you be gracious to us and bless us? Would you make your face to shine upon us? Would you be pleased to use us to make your way known on the earth? Your saving power among all the nations. Father, would you please use us to let the peoples praise you? to let all the peoples of the earth praise you. Father, would you use us to cause the nations to be glad and to sing for joy? Father, would you guide the nations to our doorsteps, to our homes, to our church, so that they might come to know and praise you? Oh God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the earth yield its fruitfulness to you and bring you glory. Father, we praise and ask that the name of Christ will be lifted among all the earth. Make us bold and faithful to that, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.